So Alex and Lydia would be my community group grandchildren. So um, John Tuck took over our community group, and then they left our community group to go start their own one. So John Tuck, if he's, he, yeah, John Tuck, you're a community group dad. Congratulations. <laughs> you're birthing children. I'm so proud of you. This is the way it's supposed to go. I love it. Well, good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're on the second week of a three-week series called Going Deeper in Prayer. So if you do me a favor, um, you should have received either last week or this week a bulletin, but also um, this is our um, Going Deep three-week manual. It's a, a guide to help you learn how to pray. If you have never prayed before, if you're new to it, or you just needed something to help you structure and help you go deeper into prayer. And so um, your sermon notes are going to be on page 12 in this. So last week, Manny Mill, um, he preached on the why of prayer, and he gave specifically three, three reasons. Number one is to enjoy God. Number two is to be changed by God. And number three is to change the world. Now, I want to just assume something on the front end with every one of you here. And uh, my assumption is that every single person in this room wants to pray. My assumption about everyone in this room is that you want to pray a lot. My assumption in this room is that you desire to enjoy God. You really want to be able to figure out how you can pray, whatever that means, in a way where you actually step away and say, I love spending time with God. I love being with Him. I love listening to Him. I love talking to Him. You may have no idea how to do it, but my assumption here is that everybody wants to enjoy God. My assumption is also that everyone in here desires that you would be changed. If you are content with yourself, how you are today, you're a narcissist. I love you, but you need to get over yourself. Um, my assumption is that every one of you believes you have not arrived and that you truly need God to transform you, not just in the externals, but in the core of who you are. My assumption about every one of you in this room is that you want to change the world, that you, on the day of your death, you look back over your life and you can measurably look back and say, this world is better because I was in it and here are 15 or 18 or 45 measurable ways that I've changed the world, or better yet, that God has changed it through me. So I want to just start off, and I want to just tell you this as we get into this. I have high assumptions of all of you here, but I also know the majority in this room are not praying regularly. I don't say that as a rebuke. I don't say it to make you feel guilty. Here's my assumption. There's a, diff there's a distance between where you are and where you want to be. Um, and the distance, we're going to have to figure out why that is. Every one of you, it's a little bit different. But somehow, um, you want to get to a place where you enjoy God more, you're changed by God more, you change the world more, your prayer life is more vibrant. So can you just give me an amen if that is where you're at? You want to go deeper with the Lord in prayer. Everybody say amen if you're there. Amen. Thank you. You're allowed to respond to me. I know it's 9 a.m., but we can do this. Um, but here's the deal, okay? Uh, there is something that has to happen before we can teach you how to pray. Um, I need to follow in Jesus' footsteps, and I need to deconstruct many of your false ideas on prayer before we can teach you how to pray. And um, specifically, I mean, there is a vast majority of our church that comes from a liturgical Christian church background. It might be Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Methodist. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on. 
And there are things that come with every background, every version of Christianity, if you will, that are good and that are bad, or that are true and that are untrue, that are helpful and unhelpful. And so what I need to do with most of you this morning is we need to deconstruct, okay? And so I'm probably going to say some things that some of you have never considered before, and some of you might be, especially maybe if you're from a Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, or Orthodox background, maybe that's your history, Here's what I want to ask you to do. Could you, and how can you say no to this, actually? Could you be so humble to not be defensive, but to engage me with your full mind? And when you leave here, let's say I have not convinced you of something, would you have, uh, we'll just say, the kindness that if you really want to talk, that you'd actually come talk to me, email me, and maybe we could work through some of this? Uh, because what I don't want to do is just put you off. I desire deeply for you to pursue God daily in prayer, to enjoy him, to be changed by him, and to change the world, okay? And so I need to deconstruct a few things with you guys, and I want you to open up with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, we'll start in verse 5. And Jesus um, is, going to, is going to teach the disciples how to pray. But before he teaches them how to pray, he has to teach them how not to pray, okay? So we're going to go through how not to pray. And here's where he starts off. He says this, um, number one, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So whatever he's about to say, does he want you to do what he is about to say? Answer is no. Is he kind of like, you know, it's an option. If you want to pray like this, go for it. Or is he adamant? Adamant, right? You can say adamant, say adamant. Adamant, good. We're, we're, all right. And here's his point. I'm going to read this for you. I'm going, to, I'm going to just tell you the point. You must not show off under any circumstances, privately or especially publicly. Now, why does Jesus even have to address this? I'm going to tell you why. Because subconsciously, in you, every time you pray is an impulse to show off. When you're praying with friends... There is an impulse in you, whether you realize it or not, that you want them to think something about you. Now, some of you are saying, I have transcended that. I have nothing to prove to anyone at any time. And I would say, good for you. 99% of the people in this room are not there. Somebody give me an amen on that one, right? You, you don't want to pray dumb things. You don't want it to sound like, oh, I'm stumbling over my words, right? You want to sound articulate. You want to be theologically correct. You want to pray with the right things. You have the right intonation and the right pace, right? And there are these weird rules that happen when we pray publicly, right? And then we listen to somebody. We say, they're a good prayer-er, whatever that word is. Like, they must be mature because their words are articulate, right? And there is a pressure there that everyone in this room understands. It doesn't mean you need to buckle it, but I just want to call out what's there. And every time somebody gets up front and we pray, like there is this question, did I pray right? Was I helpful? Was I clear? Did I, you know, like, who is my audience, by the way, when I pray publicly or privately? The answer is God. So Jesus just gets the human condition, and it might be because he made us. But he goes on, he says, no, go back, and he says, go, go, go there. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Now, are the hypocrites, okay, um, are they followers of God? They're Jews in this context, right? The pre-Christians, if you will, right? So we're not talking about, like, people who are of different faiths. We're talking about actually probably religious people. He says, look, they get up, and they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. And here's Jesus' kind of response. He says, truly I say to you, 
they have received their reward. So what they're asking for, will God give it to them? And the answer is no. Um, Because their primary motive, God gives them what they want, and the reward is to be seen and affirmed publicly. People walk along, they say, look how spiritual that person is. He prays out loud in public, in church, and that guy, that girl, that woman, that dude, he must be close to God. And God basically steps back and says this, all your requests, nothing. Because they don't really mean anything. You got your reward. People think more highly of you than they did before. Kudos, good for you. By the way, the only opinion that actually matters of you is whose? It's God's. And then he goes on, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. So there is this, I'll just, I'm going to just share a little tension that I have as a pastor, right? I love to pray with people. I enjoy it. Um, I like to talk about prayer. I, for some reason, get uncomfortable talking about my prayer life over and over and over and over again. Hey, I prayed for you. 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 Hey, what? I was praying about this. I was, you know, like, and the reason is very simple. This verse comes back to my mind regularly. On the other hand, I want to encourage people to pray. And I want to look at you and say, I have been praying for you. So if I go to you and I say to you, hey, I've been praying for you, it's actually because I have been praying for you. It's because that actually went through my brain. I set aside some time and I did it because uh, far too many years have I spent saying, oh, I prayed for you and it was just something I said but I didn't actually do. Somebody give me an amen if you've ever done that at all in your entire life. And those of you who didn't say amen, you're also lying. So, <laughs> But there is this hesitation in me okay, to talk about how much I pray. and how. I'll... So next week I'm going to share a sermon and it's going to be honestly a really deep sneak peek into my prayer life and some buddies of mine uh, and what that looks like. It's going to be very practical on how to help you pray. Like, what if you're ADHD? What if you're ADD? What if you're crazy distracted all the time? Like, if you have any struggles in prayer, how do you use your phone, your technology in prayer, all that kind of stuff? Um, how do you really know what a fruitful prayer life is? Those kind of practical things we're going to dig into next week. But I'm reading this, and here's, here's what I've tried to cultivate. I've tried to cultivate a secret prayer life. I've tried to cultivate a prayer life where me and God go privately and I beg for things in secret and I don't go tell people because there is all the time, I do sometimes, but there is this part of me that wants you to know that I pray a lot. Even if I'm not praying a lot, I want you to think I am. Can anybody else relate to this in the room? Like, am I up here, Mr. Vulnerable here, like being the only one? Okay, good. There's like nods like, yeah, 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 I totally get that. But Jesus just gets this human inclination. And so first, I want to just look at y'all and say, stop showing off. You have nothing to prove to anyone at any time ever. Let's say, hypothetically, you're praying with some friends, okay? First of all, it doesn't matter how articulate you are. And let's say you pray something dumb, okay? Like, let's, dear Jesus, I pray you would be with us. Okay, that's dumb because he's with us. Like, if you're a believer, he's with you, okay? But let's say you pray that every time you pray, okay? Does God still love you? Yes. Are you less holy and righteous and spiritual and mature because the person next to you didn't pray that exact prayer? And I can't believe you prayed that because don't you know that God's with you all the time and the Holy Spirit is in you? Like, do you get what I'm saying? Relax. Stop worrying. You go to a community group. Some of you are going to jump into a community group, and here's what you're going to face. I know you're going to face it because I've watched it happen. You've never prayed with anyone before. And then in the community group, all the guys get together, all the ladies get together, and like, we're going to pray. And you're like, 
I've never prayed with another human being in my entire life, and now I'm going to feel stupid, and here's what I can promise you. No one in your group cares how articulate you sound, how long you pray, how mature you are spiritually in that moment. They don't care. Can I get another amen? Our desire in those moments is that we could be in a community where we get to hear you talk to God personally and pour out a piece of your heart. And the person coming after you might be a seasoned prayer warrior for 60 years and might sound way more articulate, but let me tell you this. I think sometimes God loves to hear the prayers of little kids, sometimes over the years of people who have been praying over and over and over and over again. And here's what God's greatest concern is. Not your level of articulation at any given moment publicly when you pray. His desire is for what? Your heart before him. Vulnerable, transparent, and real. So we'll keep going. Number two, now we're going to ruffle some feathers. Mantras and formulas. And when you pray, do not. What does that mean? Don't. (laughs) D-O-N apostrophe T. Don't do it. Don't heap up. I love this. Like Heaping up. Empty phrases. Vain phrases. Okay? So like there are these words, these mantras, these formulas over and over again. As the Gentiles do. So who heaps up empty phrases? False religions, praying to false gods who mandate repetition and behavior for approval or for your prayers to be met. Is God so small, pathetic, and trite that he looks at you and says, I will only answer that prayer if you say 34 Hail Marys and 33 Hail Marys. I am not listening because I require a quota to be met before I intervene and intercede and answer your prayers. I'm going to expose a few things on this level here that some of you, okay, are going to be like, oh, I've never considered that. Some of you, I'm about to start sharing with you, and I'm going to address habits and patterns that you have been doing for a while and no one has ever challenged them. My goal now is not to embarrass you, okay? Do you hear me? My goal is to embarrass you if you're a prideful jerk who makes people feel bad when they don't pray the right things. I want to embarrass you, okay? But if you are somebody who has not known better Uh, My desire in this moment is to help you reevaluate what you're currently doing. And if it is something Jesus actually says not to do, you would stop doing it. Amen? And maybe you'd start doing something a little bit differently. So he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And what does this reveal about their view of God? If you think that saying a mantra a prayer, or a formula over and over and over again is a requirement to be heard from God, hear me with all the love I can muster. You need to start over in your understanding of God and of prayer. And I want to start to re-put some foundations back together for you because there are some things that you've learned that are just not true. This turns God into somebody who says, until you meet my quota, I will not answer your prayer. Well, what if you're desperate? What if you are broken on levels that are deeper than anything you've experienced before? Is God requiring a quota from you before he intercedes and intervenes for you as your dad? I mean, could you imagine your son is bleeding, and he comes to you, this is like the daily event of my life, and he says, Dad, I'm bleeding, Dad, I'm bleeding. Say it 45 times and say it with a little bit of reverence, then I'll actually help you out. Like, what a cold-hearted jerk I would be. And I truly believe 
that many of the hierarchical, liturgical, high church versions of liturgicizing and formulizing and mantracizing, all these words I'm making up as I go, often turn God into a very, very bad, abusive, manipulative dad. We don't even realize it. So I'll give you an analogy. You've heard me talk about this many times. When we say, I have to perform a certain amount of good works for God to forgive me, love me, and save me, that's like a dad looking at their son or their daughter and saying, if you perform for me, then I will love you. Can I just tell you that is an abusive, manipulative, terrible dad? And so sometimes we believe these things about God that the Bible doesn't actually teach, but if you really get down to him, what does this tell you about God? Honestly, you have believed things about God that I don't think God would be happy about. Not that he's mad at you, but I think it makes him sad that you would truly think of him, that he won't answer you until you meet your quota. He won't save you until you accrue enough good works. I truly think that God is grieved to his heart by how low some of us think about him. And how you view your salvation and how you view prayer reveals so much of what you really think of God. Now, as God's sitting there like, I can't believe you would think of me like that. I think this morning where God would look at you and say is, change your mind and grow in your love for me for who I really am. Let's, let's get to know each other for who we really are, and let's actually start now. So mantras, formulas. Maybe if I do these things, God will listen to me. I want to just make one point so clear that I hope you never forget it. If you have stopped working for your salvation, if you are not relying on your good works to be forgiven or saved, if you, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, not by works, by grace through faith, if you have stopped and you have said, I'm a sinner, I believe in you, and you tell me that I'm saved, not by doing anything, but by simply trusting you. If, you, if you have trusted in Jesus, here's what I want you to hear me, God hears you every single time and is fully attentive to every word that you utter out of your mouth, no matter how dumb the thing you just did is. There is not one prayer that you throw up to God that he's like, Yep, not listening. Nope, I'm done. Jesus has paid the price for all of your sins, past, present, and future. So in that moment that you just did that really dumb thing, is that sin fully paid for? And do you have, in that moment, full access to God through faith in Jesus Christ? Please say yes. 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 So here's what you need to understand. When you believe that the repetition of phrases and mantras and rosaries and Hail Marys and the whole sorts of things, when you believe that you need to do those things, you are telling God this, that you are a manipulative dad who will only hear me, who will only love me and only listen to me if I perform for you, if I accrue a certain amount of good works. And I just want to tell you, that is not right. And it's not what the Bible says. It's the best thing I can tell you. There's nowhere in the Bible where it prescribes formulaic, prayer or mantras like that. Maybe if I do them over and over and over again, God will answer me. I just want to go back to this point and say, your repetition of what might even be meaningful one time but becomes empty in repetition does not push God to the edge and say, you met your quota. I'm now going to do what you asked. Mantras and formulas reveal two lies that we believe about prayer. And number one, they, believe, they say this, that God cares more about the form or what you're doing than the heart. He calls these things empty phrases. There is a, uh, I'll give you a little church history lesson. You go back to the third century Rome, 
was persecuting Christians like crazy. I mean, murdering them, executing them, threatening them, punishing them, taking away their possessions. It was a very dangerous time. And at the beginning of the fourth century, Constantine became a Christian. And all of a sudden, almost it seems overnight for many Christians, um, Christianity was the legal religion of the empire. The same Romans who were persecuting them were now in church with them. And so there was this circumstance where bishops and priests, the Romans would come to them before Constantine, and they would threaten them. And there were two kinds of bishops and priests. The first kinds were the ones that did not buckle under the pressure. They said, we will serve Christ, we will suffer whatever loss you have for us. And uh, they, some died, um, some suffered. Um, There's um, extensive just stories of persecution from this time. But then there's a second group called the lapsed, those who um, fell, those who buckled under the pressure. And one of the things that you could do in this time, which was just the most sacrilege, was Rome would say, give us all of your holy books, all of your Bibles, all of the writings of Christian authors. And if you were a priest or a bishop and you gave them these books, you were branded from that day on for the rest of your life as a traitor. As a traitor. People uh, did not think highly of that because unlike us, we have thousands and thousands of of Bibles and print, whatever. Like every single uh, piece of literature from a Christian uh, heritage or perspective, every Bible, every book of the Bible was sacred and holy and valuable. So they treasured these things. And when you gave these these things over, it was terribly difficult. So when Christianity became legal, uh, here was the question. And I want you to just hear how kind of insane the dialogue became. The question was, um, I got baptized by one of the lapsed bishops. Is my baptism effective? Huh. So this, this bishop was a traitor, and then he baptized me. He also administered other sacraments to me. Are the sacraments even valid? Are they doing what they're supposed to do? And there became this significant controversy, and Constantine had to come in, and he had to level out and flatten out this controversy and make sense. And in time, there's a Latin phrase that evolved around sacraments, and I'm speaking more of a Roman Catholic mindset at this point. And the Latin phrase, it's very simple. It's ex opere operato, which means by the working of the work. Here's what it means. That the heart or the person administering a sacrament does not matter. All that matters is that the work is done. And so you can go, and you can go to a priest, and he'll say, do ten Hail Marys, and you can do your ten Hail Marys, and that the, the reality is that the actual heart of the person is not directly relevant because the working of the work accomplishes the work. As you go to this, and you're thinking to yourself, how did anybody ever get to a point where we just believe that the heart is separate from the work? How did we ever get to a place where we said it doesn't matter what the condition of the person is, it doesn't matter the condition of the bishop or the person receiving it, by the work, the work is done. By the deed, the deed is done. And it takes effect because the work just has innate power in and of itself. And so if you pray enough prayers, if you do enough work, all that matters is that the work is done. And at some point, you've got to realize that this is just kind of insane and that there is a human tendency in us and in the history of Christianity to separate the heart from the thing being done. And just because someone or something or an institution says to you, it doesn't matter where your heart was, what matters is that the deed was done, doesn't change anything. You can pray all the prayers you want. What matters to God is your heart. You may not have the perfect form, but what matters is your, say with me please, your heart. And so sometimes um, you will go before God and you'll say something dumb and nobody will ever know because it's just you and God. And if you're honest, he would say that's probably not accurate, but I get, you know, I get you have some discipleship to go. You have some ways to grow here, right? And here's the deal. God loves when a heart after him prays. Okay, 
And if you think that the accumulation of your mantras and formulas makes you heard and that the working of that work accomplishes your forgiveness, you have missed the point. And without, with the Reformation and what we now want to just try to train our people in is form is important, but form does not trump the heart. What you say matters. Who you are and the heart with which you pray is of utmost importance. So we'll keep going here. Mantras and formulas reveal two lies about what we believe about prayer. Number one, that God cares more about form than the heart. Number two, that God cares more about obedience than the heart. You just got to do the right thing. You just got to pray the prayer. You just got to pray the rosary. You just got to pray the Hail Mary. You just got to pray this. You just got to do this. You just got to say this thing. You just got to do that thing. God just wants you to do it. Now, you have kids. Constantly. Say sorry to your sister. Ugh. Sorry. Like, does that count? I mean, she obeyed, right? But does that count? And the answer is no. And so this is, honestly, the heartlessness with which some of us pray. Our heart is not engaged in the actual mantra or the formula. Our heart is distant from it, and we're doing it. Well, and then here's what I said. Well, that doesn't count, okay? Well, I said it. I know you said it. I'm concerned with why you said it and the attitude with which you said it, right? At the end of the day, I'm concerned with your heart, little girl. And this is how I think God is thinking. Like, okay, I get it. You think that I'm going to listen to you if you accumulate all this stuff. And more important than you obeying it and trying to accrue your obedience and do as many good works as you possibly can, God's like, I would just so much rather you mean it. I would just so much rather have your heart than your accumulation of good works and mantras and formulas. So Jesus starts here and he says, I got to dismantle you before I can put you back together. I need to let you know this. Stop showing off and worrying about what other people think of you when you pray. And stop with the formulas and mantras. They're getting in the way of your words from your heart to your God. They're getting in the way of intimacy with God. Now, some of you dudes, okay? I want to just call the dudes for a moment, okay? You'll hear us say the word intimacy. Um, we've been trying to find for years in our church a word that describes what God wants from our hearts, what he really wants for us. And the heart is the word that the Bible uses over and over again. God wants your heart. And one of the best words that we've been able to find is intimacy. But for many dudes, this is a girl word, right? She wants me to have a more intimate relationship. Intimate is not masculine. And I want to just redeem the word with you for a moment and say intimacy is an awesomely masculine word and that God, who identifies as Father and Son, Jesus, the Father, is masculine in his identification and loves the concept of intimacy, of nearness, of closeness, of vulnerability, of realness, like these things that sometimes guys avoid. And I just want to look at you and say, as I say the word intimacy, don't just check out and be like, that's a girl word, right? God's like a chick. I want you to step back and say, this is deeply masculine, and this is what God wants, actual intimacy from the heart. He wants, when you pray, for you to truly, from your heart, enjoy being with him. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. And when you don't enjoy being with him, he'd rather you just look at him and say, I'm really having a hard time with this. Would you teach me how to enjoy this? Because honestly, I can't see you, touch you, smell you, or feel you right now, and I have to figure out how to enjoy you. So would you, would you help me here? And I think God is really gracious. He's really patient. He puts up with us. Amen, right? I think he can help us and teach us how to pray and move us along. So you guys might say a few things in response to my mantra and prayer, like rant, and, um, okay, Michael, but it makes me feel closer to God when I do it. There are a lot of things that will make you feel closer to God. Ecstasy will make you feel closer to God. 
doesn't mean it's right or good. There are religions that all different forms and methods of prayer, false different gods, and they will step back and say, that makes me feel closer to God. The legitimacy of something is not based on how it makes you feel. Because here's the reality. Whether you feel close to God or not, if you're in Jesus Christ, how far are you away from him at any given moment in time? You're never. He dwells inside of you 24-7. You can look at me and say, I don't feel close to God. It does not change the objective fact that he is in you, near you, and you cannot get away from him. Michael, people have said canned prayers for centuries who do you think you are and preachers like you who are saying, rather than just praying other people's formula prayers and monitoring them and formalizing them ourselves, like who are you to say we can't do that anymore? Let me just go back and say, I'm not even telling you not to do it anymore. I think Jesus would say be very careful of them because the human condition is such that we formalize our relationship with him. I would just look at you and say, honestly, if you can't just talk to God like this, like one-on-one, and you need a formula to bridge the relationship, you're not understanding something. And I want to just look at you and free you up and say, if all you've ever done is pray formulas, if all you've ever done is pray mantras, if that's what you rely on, stop it for a week or two and just start talking to God because he hears every single word you say. So what about praying the Our Father and the Rosary? Let me talk about the Our Father in just a moment. I know some of you are Catholic or ex-Catholic, and um, I really do um, honor you, love that you're here, ask you to consider some of my Um, thoughts, but here's what I would just simply say to you about most mantras and prayers like this. Nowhere in scripture do we find these to be mandated or the practice of people who pray in scripture. People in scripture don't pray mantras. When you read the prayers in scripture, they are the prayers of men and women from their heart to God. They're not repeating formulas and mantras. And so I would look at you and say, it's not the practice of Scripture, it's not the command of Scripture. In fact, the model of Scripture is that men pray and women pray, um, and they pray biblical principles, but they talk to God from their heart, and that's what they do. Sometimes they write them, sometimes they sing the prayers, a whole bunch of different methods of communicating, but at the end of the day, it's God's people from God's heart, from their heart to God with their own words talking to God. And I just want to submit that to you as a primary way to pray. So, so what? I'll just give you a couple summaries on this. Mantras and formulas are a sometimes thing. I'm, I'm saying that generously, um, but not your substitute for your words from your mouth, from your heart to your God. Is that clear? Number two, mantras and formulas are only meaningful, I should just say, if you mean them. <laughs> I know I shouldn't even have to say that, but let's be honest, right? We come from backgrounds that say as long as you do it, it's fine. The doing of the deed gets it accomplished. And I want to just look at you and say, it's only meaningful if you actually mean them. And number three, mantras and formulas are not the regular practice of Scripture, but are actually warned about in Scripture. So that if you're going to go back down that route, you need to understand the clear warning of Scripture about mantras and formulas. Are we clear? Now we need to talk about how to pray. You guys ready for that? Now let's go home. Kidding. Luke 11, 1, uh, this is what it says. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So the, the, the disciples, they've prayed before, right? I mean, they're human, they're Jewish, they're religious, they get this. And then they watch Jesus pray. And you know what happens? They step back and they say, oh my goodness. We apparently are missing something like 
amazingly significant because we've never prayed like that. There's something about Jesus's prayer life that just totally struck them, set them back, and they said, you need to teach us how to pray because whatever you're doing, like we clearly don't understand a couple things here. And I love this. Have you ever like heard someone pray and then you think to yourself, wow, they get something that I don't get. Anybody ever been like that? Like you're praying with them and you're like, man, how, like they're, they're still praying and they mean it and they're not showing off. Like, wow, I am instructed by just watching this person how to pray. I mean, there are people like that, which is one of the beautiful benefits of praying in humble community is that sometimes you will, you will learn how to pray by listening to somebody pray. And there are moments like this, but here's what I want you to get at. The, the disciples saw something was missing inside of them, and the Jewish people, hear me, had so formulated and regulated their prayer life that they began to miss the actual point. You hear me? They so formulated and regulated their prayer life that they missed the point. So here's two phrases and one with reverent intimacy. Just trying to find words that as succinctly as I could captured, I think, what Jesus brought before the Father. And so we have this phrase in Matthew chapter 6. Here's what he says. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So, look, no, go back. Leave it up. Pray then like this. You have to hear me because, because you're an American Western Christian who understands Roman Catholic and Orthodox backgrounds, all this kind of stuff. You have ingrained into your soul that this means here is the formula with which you were supposed to pray. Did Jesus just say, don't pray with mantras and formulas in his own words? Answer is yes. So now do you think he would turn around and say, now that I just said don't pray repetitive uh, prayers with empty phrases, repeat this over and over and over again. Like, do you think that's what he meant? Bill Schurst's answer is no. When he says pray then like this, that is not what he's talking about. And I think here's the first thing. We get to our Father. And uh, this would have been, this is mostly undisputed, um, from an Aramaic word that means Abba. And the word can be used in a multiple contexts, but really at its core in a context like this, here's what you get. Dad. Intimacy. Daddy. Uh, that's a weird thought, right? Usually like, oh, Heavenly Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like even the King James itself like ruins the intimacy of it, right? And yet in Jesus, he's, he's talking. He, I think this is how I'd summarize it. He would say, Look, y'all, don't repeat verbatim what I'm about to say, but let me just show you what it looks like when somebody from the heart talks to God. Hey, Dad. And they're probably like, what? Are you you kidding me? Hey, Dad, um, my sole desire is that your name would be made famous. And they're probably stepping back saying, hold up, hold up, hold up. What about the formulas? What about the mantras? I just told you, don't pray the formulas and the mantras. Let me say this again. Dad, my sole desire is that your name would be made famous. So don't get lost in the hallowed, okay? You don't know what that means. It's not like to bless, to glorify, to make much of, to exalt, to lift up, whatever it is, the idea is God higher, us lower. That's that's a simple part of it, right? And you just step back, and he's just showing them. 
does he want you to verbatim repeat this phrase every single time you start praying to God? The answer, please say no, is no. That's not the point of the Our Father. The point is simply this. You pray to God with reverent intimacy. Hallowed be your name. I mean, you are out there. I mean, you are to be more glorious than anything else in the world, but you're my dad. You're right here. Some Christian traditions focus on the transcendence of God, the out there-ness of God. He's all the way out there. He's untouchable. He's, oh, he's bigger than anything you can imagine. And some only focus on the intimacy with God. God is my friend. He's my lover. And there's this tension between reverent intimacy that as the book of Hebrews says, we can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. Okay, 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 okay. Would the Jew ever think that he could approach God's heavenly throne with boldness and confidence? The answer is no. You approach with hesitance and fear and trembling. And something about Jesus actually changed how now we understand the approachability of God. It doesn't matter who you are, priest or not. You approach God with boldness. You go to the throne of grace with complete confidence. No worry or concern whatsoever that he will reject you or not hear you or ignore you or postpone you. But you go with absolute, total confidence to the throne of grace. I mean, something is different about what Jesus is teaching them. He is going to God with a reverent intimacy that they have never seen before. They've seen reverence. But intimacy with God is something that was lost in the Jewish culture at this time. And this is what we love. We, we love formulas and mantras because our view of God is out there. And yet when Jesus teaches us to pray, he comes back to this. I'm not just out there. I am in here. You can pray with reverence and you must because I am holy and righteous and I can destroy you like this. And at the same time, I'm your dad. And I dwell in you. And this is, this is the tension of prayer that honestly is very hard to get our head around. You've got to understand a few things here. Number one, the implication of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection on prayer. Number one, the temple was where people went to meet with God, and God was in there. You couldn't even go in and get to him, otherwise you would die. And when Jesus was on the cross, the veil of the temple that was a huge roadblock between, I mean, it's just an enormous veil, incredibly thick, I mean, very tall, cuts right in half, and the clear message is this. There is now no distance between you and God except for faith in Jesus Christ, and that is it. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you walk boldly and confidently in that temple, and you talk to God because you have full access to him, no matter what you've just done, no matter what. you got to understand that the temple, they, they viewed God as, I have to go there to meet with God. Do you need to come to church to meet with God? Answerville churches, no. Number two, the promise of the Holy Spirit. So at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the church is just starting. Where does the Holy Spirit leave? The temple. And where does he enter? Into the people. And so now, the death and resurrection, ascension of Jesus means you no longer have to go to a place to talk to God. You can find God anywhere you go because if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have his Holy Spirit and he is with you 24-7. Do you see how this is unraveling the entire Jewish concept of God, intimacy, prayer, connection, all this kind of stuff? Number, number three, the end of the priestly system. So there, are, there is residue in Christendom of this, but this idea that, that you have to go to a person who is a mediator between you and God in any way, shape, or form is... Com- I, I don't have any good words for it. It's not good. <laughs> There is one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. 
If you want to talk to God, be forgiven by God, hear from God, whatever it is, you go through Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. There is no priest that needs to mediate for you. No priest can, in behalf of God, forgive your sins. Who forgives sins? His name is God, Jesus. That's it, done. And so the priest is a mediator. Like somehow Christendom has to rethink this whole process because it is interrupting our understanding of true prayer that somehow we need any man to intercede between us and God because we have the God-man Jesus who's the mediator once and for all. We finally see this, the law is fulfilled. There is no more list of demands upon us. It is grace upon grace upon grace. So when we approach the throne of God, he doesn't say, did you, did you, did you, did you? He says, I've forgiven you, I love you. It's unconditional. Grace upon grace upon grace. It's why it's the throne of grace. I mean, this blows up, right? This liturgical Jewish mindset. And now Jesus comes in and they're like, what are you doing? You are praying with a reverent intimacy that we've never seen before. And some of you need to leave here, get by yourself, go for a walk, get in your car. And for the first time, talk to God without relying on a formula or a priest or whatever else and just trust that Jesus Christ has forgiven your sins and you have one mediator it is Jesus Christ between you and God and you get to talk to him whenever you want about whatever you want he hears every word you pray because he loves you you're his son you're his daughter and he hears you like some of you just need to go start doing that and some of you you're like do you hear me and you know what I get the question and the answer is always if you've trusted in Jesus yes do you love me Yes, but you've let all this junk happen in my life. Do you still love me? Yes. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. I think what he was suggesting to them is earth-shattering. God is not just up there or over there in the temple. He is in you and in you, and you have full access. And then finally, how do you pray? Now, some of you, you want me to preach a whole sermon on all of the points of the Lord's Prayer. And if I did that, you might leave thinking, I'm going to go now pray the Lord's Prayer. And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus did not intend this to be a formula. And when he said the Lord's Prayer, it wasn't rocket science. They understood it. So we'll put a couple of these up for you. Hallowed be your name. Make much of your name. Is that simple? It's hard to do, but it's easily understood. Uh, Your kingdom come. Not my kingdom, not the kingdom of, a, of any nation, the United States, the UN, whatever. Whose kingdom do we desire to come to earth? The answer is God's. Your will be done. On earth it is as in heaven. Okay, what is the most important thing in your prayer life, your will or God's will? God's will, okay? So I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And at the end of the day we say, somehow, whatever word you use, I'm not trying to give you the words, but hey, I really want your will to be done, not mine. Okay, and go on. Give us this day our daily bread. God, give me a 401k that grows tomorrow so that I can have security. And I would really love to know my job will be there tomorrow. And I really just want to know, uh, I could go on and on. I could just, I love this. He's like, pray for today. Uh, today's God's job. Tomorrow is God's job. You, you, you chill. You just relax. He goes on. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And there's, there's an exhortation in here, and there's a reality. And the word forgiveness, it does not always mean the same thing every time. Here's what it means. Um, could we have reconciliation? I messed up. Can we be okay, right? I feel distant from you. Um, can you reassure me of what you've already done for me on the cross? That's, in the New Covenant context, that's what that means, okay? And then God will look back and say, yes, absolutely. And by the way, um, what I've given to you, give to other people. 
and spades. So if, if you have received grace from me, which you have, then you just dump it on other people. And if you don't do that, then you don't understand what I've done for you. And then lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Now, here's what I love. We pray for things because they are not in our control. And so there's a, there's a huge lesson here. I don't pray that I wake up every morning and can put on my shirt. Right? I don't pray that my eyes open up. Why? Because I feel like the illusion, I have the illusion, I have control over that. Right? Um, I pray for things that are outside of my jurisdiction. I pray for things that I feel are out of my control. And I go to him and it's an acknowledgement. Like, look, I have these things that are important to me, but ultimately, I'm coming to you because I need you. And when it comes to my, my provision, I could have all the 401k I want, but one collapse of an economy can ruin every single dollar that I think I have. I have no idea what's going to happen to my health, my, my, my protection. I mean, the reason you pray for protection is because you can't protect yourself. And I love this. He's tapping into the spiritual realm here. He says, hey, hey, by the way, disciples, there's a massive spiritual battle happening all around you, and you need to be protected, and you need God to intervene for you. So it might go well for you to like, pray for things concerning the spiritual realm and for protection, right? Now, I'm not going to try to hear, like, sit here and tell you how to pray for spiritual protection. Read Ephesians chapter 6 and different things like that, and we can talk about that. That's a whole other sermon. I've got like a limited amount of time. In fact, I'm over. So we're just... And the band is like, amen, finish it up, Michael. But you come back to these six things, and very simply, here's what you have. Values that are of utmost importance to God. And next week, I want to actually talk about how do I know whether or not I even value these things. And really, the only way you can know you value them is if you document what you're praying. That's it. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that. And so some of you are going to be asking as we close, but Michael, you gave us this booklet that gave us a formula. Acts is four different kinds of prayers, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I want you to hear me. It is not a formula. And if you start praying this like a formula, you have missed the point. You've missed the point. That's why this doesn't structure it as a formula. And so if you are wanting to learn how to pray, this sermon is a way to dismantle some wrong thinking, to put some right thinking in front of you. My win today is simple. If you leave here and you feel the confidence to approach God because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that is a win. For me, that is one of the greatest wins. You've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And you believe because of your habits of sin over the past month, year, or decade, or plus, that God is not listening to you, doesn't love you, doesn't like you, and he is holding you at arm's length. My prayer for you is that you run back to him with grace and confidence, the grace poured out on you, and the confidence to approach his throne, knowing that grace will be dispensed on you over and over and over again. My, my desire for you is not to make you feel guilty. It's not to ruin your life. It is to build a measurable bridge that you can walk over and know that you can talk to God. And that bridge is faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to invite the band up, and we're going to close in prayer. And uh, we're also, I want you to catch this. This last song that we sing, worship is prayer to words. It is adoration. So it's not like when I say amen, we're stopping to pray. You're actually going to continue praying. People say, you need, churches need to pray more during the service. Every time we sing, we are lifting high prayer to melody. So let's pray and I continue to pray through song. Father, um, I just want to say thank you for giving us Jesus. There is one mediator between God and man. There is one high priest. His name is Jesus and that is it and there is none other. And Lord, because we have placed our faith in Jesus alone, you hear us. 
You welcome us. You invite us. And we run with confidence to you no matter what is going on. And I pray, God, that you would remind us of that truth. And Lord, as there are so many people who have walked with you for years and years and know this inside and out, and yet we have neglected to discipline this into our life, would you, this week, next week, would you help us learn how to do that? And would you inspire and equip us to do, honestly, um, what we need to do so we can enjoy you and be changed and change the world? We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.